Everything in life, if you're going to be successful at doing it, requires that you have passion, right? It gets back to this Malcolm Gladwell thing, 10,000 Hours, and uh, which one of the rap artists came out with a song about that uh, here not all that long ago? Someone sent it to me, and uh, I listened to it, impacting song, 10,000 Hours, whether you're a musician or a pool player, <laughs> whether you're going to catch catfish or you're going to be a construction worker or an engineer, you will never rise above the rest of the heap, rest of the crowd, until you develop passion. Your passion will drive you to a place where you can experience success that others who do not have passion cannot experience success at that same level or in that same, to that same degree. Well, that's true in ministry. It's true in your marriage. I've seen people that almost had to lose their marriage before they became passionate enough about saving it to learn how to study and to how to have a better relationship. But once you get enough passion, it's amazing what you can do with your life. And that's exactly what Ecclesiastes teaches us in verse number 7 of chapter 9, seize life. It's directly referring to passion. And we've gone on to explain that even then, you know, human beings have a ceiling where we max out. We tap out. I mean, after a while, you got to pedal all the way down to the floorboard. That car's not going any faster. You've drawn from all your resources, whether that's family, friends, connections. You've done everything you can, you can do. At that point, we need to draw from resources greater than ourselves or our life has just ceilinged out. That's as far as we're going to go with our lives. Now, it's, I've been fascinated, as I've already mentioned, by this plethora of movies that have come out in this genre of heroes, superheroes, whether it's the Avengers or Transformers or Thor or whoever it may be, all these movies that talk about people with supernatural ability that is greater than the rest of us possess that can fix these problems for us. And I personally think that this is a reflection of the fact that we are living in one of the most disillusioned eras that man has ever lived on the face of this planet. I'm talking about people are disillusioned right now. You know why? Because we were sold a bill of goods. We were told the day is coming, the future is bright, and all of this, and we heard these, these bright prognostications for the future, and we're going to all be so educated, and we're going to have you know, all of this and that and everything, and our lives are going to be wonderful. And now... Men, men, men have never been more educated than they are today, and yet there's never been a crazier, more insane, deadly world that we have ever lived in in all of history than the one that exists right now. Tell me if I haven't thought about it. I've been thinking about it for years because we fly over places like Sudan and Somalia getting into Africa and the places where we have Bible schools and minister and churches. Ask me if I hadn't thought about rocket-propelled missiles that might reach that high. Long before they ever knocked that Malaysian flight out of the sky over the Ukraine, I already had concerns. Why don't they change flight paths and go around some of these? And then finally a plane gets knocked out and they say, oh, we may have to change flight paths. Well, gee, I thought of that a long time ago. You know, why didn't you listen? You know, well, these are concerns we have. Look at Ebola. That's scary. Kills 90% of the people that become infected. 
And they put a couple of them on a plane and put them in a uh, pressurized chamber of isolation on a private jet and flew them to Atlanta. And I want everybody to get all the help they can. But, uh, you know, I hope they haven't had any dark reasons for bringing those folk here. I hope they're not trying to weaponize that thing. I mean, all this stuff goes through your mind in today's world. Come on, seriously, you thought of that same thing, hadn't you? You wonder what's happening. I hope they develop a cure for all of this. Liberia, families are putting people with Ebola out in the streets and leaving their dead bodies in the streets. It's so scary. And I've been in parts of the world where they have it. (coughs) Don't shake my hand. No, it's a joke, joke. I shouldn't joke about anything that serious, but I've got to lighten up the tension in the room for just a moment. It's a crazy world we live in, and trust me, I sit next to somebody on an airplane that goes to coffin. You know what I've done? I bought me some of them little doctor's masks. That's right. It's, it, it, you'd do the same thing. That's the world we live in. What, what happened to all these solutions we were supposed to have right now? world's never been more broke. I'm talking about broken and, and more in need of fixing than it is today. I mean, we've got troubled spots all over the world that are erupting. And it looks to me like the only real benefit of the education that ever is accessible to so many people is they're using that to make the world even more scary. Well, not the only benefit, but one of the big concerns of, the, of that has certainly been, that's been the result. So then we have all this plethora of superheroes, movies about them and that genre. And I think what it is is a desperate cry at a subconscious level for people to try to some way, somehow or another, obtain supernatural help. That's what I really think. And you know what? There is a way you can do that. The writer of Hebrews said, we have a high priest who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And when you have maxed out and you floorboarded it and gone as far as you can with human abilities and resources, there's a God that you can touch. And in this series this year, throughout the course of this year, I've been talking about, you know, I'll preach, you know, we'll choose a theme for the year, but as we feel led by God, but I'll preach many, many series in the course of a year. And we've talked about how that different ones moved God and how that, for example, Rebecca moved God by extraordinary service. She said, I'll not only water, give you water to drink, I'll water your camels. We've talked about what that meant. We've talked about the centurion who had extraordinary faith and moved God to act extraordinarily in his life. And he got home, his servant was healed. Not everybody got healed that day, but his servant did. And even Jesus said, I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. We've talked about others. Rachel, who moved God by extraordinary desire, give me children or I die. And now we're talking about Nehemiah, who moved God by providing in one of the darkest chapters of Israel's history, extraordinary leadership. Israel had been carried away into captivity in Babylon, where they had been just basically their homeland decimated, wiped out, and they were prophetically told they would be there 70 years. And Nehemiah rises up to fulfill the prophecy that they will return back to their homeland, he and Ezra, and Nehemiah goes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
It's at this point I want us to just stop and pray. Father, I thank you for everything that you're doing for us. I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And we ask you to let your word impact our hearts and change the way we think as I so often pray because doing the same thing we've always done and indeed our actions are based upon our thoughts will only produce what we've always had. I pray you'll change the way we think and therefore equip us and help us by programming us with your word in this service this morning that it may in turn impact our future and our destinies. And everybody said in Jesus' name, shout it out loud, amen. amen. So when I talk about leadership, I certainly think it's a relevant theme. I don't believe there's ever been a time that our world's needed more leadership than it does right now or needed it any more greatly than it does now from corporate boardrooms to Congress, from Wall Street to the local community. I think that we need leadership in a big way, not only in this nation, but the rest of the world. And there will always come times of crisis, always. I think that's the one thing we can draw out of what I've just got through saying, that regardless of how educated we become or how far the world advances technologically, I think we still realize there are challenges. There will always be a crisis. Here's what I want you to understand. How you lead in that time of crisis can determine whether your family survives or not and recovers or the ministry survives and recovers or your finances survive and recover. It might be that the crisis you face may be in the area of your finances. If you lead correctly and according to God's plans and his principles, it will make the favor of God return back upon your life and your life can be blessed and prosperous once more. If you panic, now this is key, or simply ignore the crisis or decide not to pay the price for success, as I taught last week, you will pay the price to fail. Because inevitably, a crisis that is not addressed with good leadership or one that is addressed with flawed leadership will get worse. It will not only get worse, it can become catastrophic. And so let's talk about the next leadership principle that Nehemiah demonstrated. Nehemiah elevated the lives of his people. The defining characteristic of Nehemiah's leadership is once he had led, his people were better off afterward than they were before. Okay? Most people want to be blessed. Would you agree with that? Amen. And they want to move to a higher level. Let me break it down. If they're poor, they would like to make more money. Really, making more money is not enough. If you don't know how to spend what you make, you'll spend 10% above what you make regardless of how much you make. Amen. If you don't know how to handle what you've got. People who are alone or lonely would like to be loved and cared for. If they're sick, most, most people, would you agree with this, would like to be healed and well. Most, I say most people, amen. You ever met anybody who didn't want to get, get well? I have. Jesus asked the man at the pool in St. John chapter 5, wilt thou be made whole? He was asking him that because some people are just happy to, to live where they are. Quibido, Thibodeau, and Boudreaux. We're sitting on a boat in the bayou one day fishing. And they'd been fishing a good while, and it was cloudy. And suddenly, a bright light 
burst through the clouds, spotlighted their boat, shone from heaven directly upon them, a beam of intense light so bright it was blinding. And it spooked them, and they started to get nervous. And all of a sudden, they heard a voice from on high say, I am the Lord your God. And they all looked at one another again saying, I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. And the Lord said, don't get nervous. I'm not here to pass judgment on you. I only want to grant each one of you a healing wish today. All three of you have suffered with infirmities, and I want to heal all three of you. I'm going to grant you a wish. At which point they all calmed down, and Quibido stood up and said, as you already know, Lord, I've been having this crick in the back of my neck for the past 10 years, and if you were to grant me a healing wish, that would be it. And the Lord waved his hand, and Quibido started moving his neck freely. He said, my shad, that doesn't feel good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And he sat down. Amen. Thibodeau stood up next and said, you know, Lord, that bum leg I've been having for these past 15 years, you know how bad it hurts? If you were to grant me one wish, that would be the one. And the Lord waved his hand, and immediately Thibodeau felt the pain leave his leg. And he said, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you. I done thank you so much from the deep of my heart. I done thank you. And before Thibodeau could sit down, there was a loud splash behind the boat. And both Quibido and Thibodeau turned around and looked, and Boudreaux was swimming away from the boat as fast as he could toward the shore of the bayou. And Thibodeau shouted and said, Boudreaux, where are you done going? The Lord is not here to pass judgment on you, man. He's going to grant you that one healing wish you need. You know that bad back of yours? He can heal it for you right here and now. Boudreaux never missed a beat, just kept swimming. And he said, no, no, Shad, I don't want the Lord to heal me. I lose my disability check. <laughs> You get that anointing away from me. Don't you bring that anointing over here. <laughs> Some folk might not want their life to improve, but most of us do. And Nehemiah as a leader figured out that I cannot be a good leader unless I elevate the lives of the people who are following me. Nehemiah 5 verses 1 through 7. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren, for there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. We're starving. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children is their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became, Nehemiah said, I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, and after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Nehemiah took steps to address a societal wrong. One of the things that you learn as you study this passage of Scripture and then apply it to the lives of people, this whole book, in fact, is that these people did not even become concerned about society's wrongs, the injustices they were living with, as long as their survival was at stake. 
as long as Sanballat and his team were out there circling, and they were afraid they'd be attacked and killed, they weren't worried about where their next meal would come from. It's exactly what Abraham Maslow taught in his hierarchy of human needs, is that once the survival needs of an individual are met, they move on to the next tier of needs, which are needs that have to do with other things in life. And he actually outlined a whole platform of needs, graduated tiers of needs. And we're all wired that way. If you're afraid that a bullet's going to find you before the day is over, that is a big enough concern that you're not as worried necessarily about whether you have shoes on your feet. And so Nehemiah had helped them construct the wall, and the wall is near completion. They are now more secure than they have ever been. And the enemies of the people of God are circling in frustration and they realize that they're not as vulnerable to attack. To attack, We can't get to them as easily as we were able to before. And the people have begun to breathe a sigh of relief insofar as physical security is concerned. And then they become aware, hey, we don't have any food. Not only that, our children have been sold into bondage because our homes and lands were so heavily mortgaged that they've been repossessed by our own brothers. And they, Nehemiah looked at it and said, this is not right. A governmental structure has been implemented that preys upon the people that it's supposed to be helping. Taxation is too high. They're suffocating under debilitating uh, debt. They can't get ahead. And what's worse is that while they're becoming more and more enslaved, there's somebody that's being enriched more and more at the top. And Nehemiah said, this is not right. And he set about to bring to the nation of Israel, the people of God, political and governmental reforms that would help people to be free from this. Now, I've got a couple of things to say before I preach. They lived in a monarchy during those times. Before that, it had been a theocracy. A theocracy is when God ruled. Monarchy is when a king rules. Our governmental system here is somewhat different. We are republic. We sometimes incorrectly say that we're a democracy. We're not necessarily a democracy. We are a republic. I don't have time to explain the difference. You can go look it up. We are a federal republic. But the bottom line is simply this. Nehemiah, to fulfill his mission, found out that I don't just save their lives, I've got to help them live their lives next. Whoa, that is heavy. Because when I look at the life of Jesus Christ in his ministry, I find out that Jesus did not come to just save people, as you've often heard me say, and be used as a fire escape for people to get out of hell, get out of jail free card. Jesus came that you might have, say it, life, and that you might have it more abundantly than you had it before. That seems to me to indicate a process of elevation. And since that was one of the things that Christ came to do, it therefore remains a cause that continues as a mission of the church to this very present hour. We are to elevate the lives of those we lead. And make no mistake about it, elevation is what God intends for every person that ever gets saved. He doesn't want you to just get saved, baptized, join a church roster roll somewhere, and hang on until you die and go to heaven in the sweet by and by. 
He wants to improve the quality of your life here that you can be a living testament to the goodness of the God who has saved you. Amen. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. Remember these verses from last year? But God, who is what? Rich in mercy because of his what? Great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I've got a word for you. It's going to take me a moment to lay it out. I'm not even going to finish it today, but I want you to understand being raised up is different than being resurrected when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. He saved you, gave you life, breathed resurrection life into you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins, but he didn't leave you there. He then continued and wishes to continue the process where you will be made to sit together in heavenly places. That's elevation, amen. By that, as you've often heard me preach, I mean to communicate and want it to be understood that he wants to elevate us in every way. I think one of the great failings of the modern church is that it has failed to understand theologically that God came, Jesus came to do more than just save us from hell. I think that we have failed in missions outreaches around the world. I think we've failed in community outreaches at home and in our own churches. We have taught people that what's important is to accept Jesus Christ and we leave them right there. It's more than that, 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 that the gospel is involved with, my friend. I, I need you to understand that getting saved and accepting Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit is only the beginning of something, not the end of something. It initiates the process. It gets it started. One of the most important things you will ever learn from the Word of God is that while certainly relationship with God is foremost among the things that Jesus came to restore, relationship is not the only thing Jesus came to restore. Not. While it is foremost, it is not the only thing. You need to realize that when man fail, that man fail in the garden because of the the enemy and the trap he had set for him. And in 1 John 3 and 8, this is what your Bible says. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I'm not hearing somebody respond to that and I need an amen right there. What? Jesus came to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. Works, plural, did you see that? Not just the work of the devil in isolating you from God and breaking off relationship between you and God, but Adam lost some other things too, amen. And as you've often heard me say, theologically the fall of Adam is called the fall because he failed from some place he had been. You don't fall unless you were at a place up higher. You hear what I'm saying? Adam fell from something. What did he fall from? He went from an elevated state to a lower state of existence, and he not only lost relationship with God, he lost the glory image of God that he carried on his person. 
He also lost divine authority. He lost continual harvest. He lost prosperity. He lost divine health. He lost the right to function with unlimited resources. He lost the divine peace of God. He lost the divine insight that God gave him upon creating him that made Adam know when he had never seen animals before, when God brought them to him, Adam called them by their correct names. He had divine insight. All of that has been lost. If somebody had divine insight, we'd be fixing the problems in our world right now. Amen. Amen. And I want you to know that Jesus came to destroy everything the devil did. Acts 3 and 21 speaks of Christ and says, Whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. You see that word all right there? All things. In the Greek, the word is actually all forms of declension or loss. What it is saying is everything that Adam lost, Jesus came to restore. That's a lot bigger than just using him as a fire escape out of hell. It means when you get saved, he came to restore some stuff that Adam forfeited in the garden that you and I have learned to live without. Oh, hallelujah. And because elevation is a primary mission of Christ, it is therefore one of the church. We should not just seek to get people saved. We need to elevate the quality of their lives. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that when you get saved, your health ought to be better. Your finances ought to improve. Your marriage ought to turn around. Your relationships are going to get better. You're going to have greater peace of mind. I want you to know that whatever's in the gospel will fix whatever you're going through right now. Because whatever you're going through is one of the works of the devil. Amen. The self-destructiveness, the, the tension, the lack of peace, the pain, the hurt, the breakup of homes, the financial ruin, the depravity of man, all of this was caused by what the devil did. These are the works of the devil. Jesus came to turn that around. And Nehemiah understood that because early in Scripture, when they finally had reached the point that the people in Jerusalem were not worrying about their throats getting slit at night while they slept because they were building a wall and they now have physical protection. He then turned his attention to the societal wrongs of that day and said, we're gonna fix some of this too. Because if you're gonna get hooked up with God, he's not gonna just fix it where you get saved, he's gonna fix it where your life gets better. He's gonna fix it where your life improves. I'm here to preach a message today. I want you to know that salvation doesn't take anything from you. It puts you at a higher place in life than you can possibly live without God. Amen, amen, amen. And that's true, and that should be the case because we are the body of Christ, and the mission of Christ was not only to seek and save, it was to elevate. It should therefore be true of his body that anybody that gets connected to us, whether it's our children, our students in school, and the class we teach, the workers on the job, I mean, no matter who it is, if you get hooked up with us, something ought to be working to improve the quality of your life. And 
and you ought to be getting lifted up. Just your boat ought to be floating a little higher just because you got in contact with me or somebody else. It is the responsibility of the church and its leadership to always point toward the fullness of restoration, not just salvation alone. Amen. Oh, can I hear an amen right now? Help me and look at your neighbor and say, are you listening to what that man is talking about? And why do I I have you do that? It's because not all churches and ministries are concerned about elevation. Mm -hmm. Most churches are silent about anything that doesn't have to do with their plan of salvation. Amen. Get them saved. That seems to be the motto. Leave them in misery. Just get them saved. Uh Uh-uh. Many churches and ministries even, dare I say this, go a step further and demean and lower people that connect with them. Use people. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm against that Preachers of L.A. thing out there. And uh-uh, When you use people to elevate you, it's all backwards. That's wrong. And you're supposed to be elevating them, not them elevating you. And you hear what I'm saying? There's something perverted and twisted and all of that. That's, that's sick. That's just not right. Amen. A true and authentic church is tasked with the responsibility to not only get people saved, but to see the quality of their life improve in every way. And Laban, who is a prototype of the world, connects with Jacob. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even know who his son-in-law is. He doesn't realize that his son-in-law carries a patriarchal blessing. He carries a messianic promise. Because, a- because Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make out of you a great nation, and everybody in the world's going to get blessed for your sake. Isaac came along, that blessing was passed to Isaac. Now Jacob, and it's been passed to him. You need to tell somebody, I'm carrying stuff you don't even know I'm carrying. Mm. Jacob shows up running from his brother Esau, marries into Laban's family, and Laban straight away begins to, well, you know, take him in. Amen. I mean by take him in, con him, not just give him a place to stay. He bamboozled poor Jacob, conned Jacob, scammed Jacob, changed his salary 10 times. Even the night of his wedding switched out his wife for somebody else. I don't even know how that worked. I mean, I under no circumstances can, can relate to that. I mean, I knew who I had in my room that night when I got married. But Jacob is, I don't know, man. I don't know if this guy had eye trouble. He had too much of the juice, you know, or what it was going on. But he didn't even figure out he was married to the wrong woman. And then the next day, I mean, from the beginning, Laban has been trying to con this boy until Jacob finally has enough and said, I'm leaving. And this is what Laban said, Genesis 30 and 27. Please stay. Not just stay, but please stay. If I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Amen. 
That's what the world ought to be saying to the church. We didn't know who you were when you first moved into this neighborhood and that's what somebody on your, your job ought to be saying about you. I didn't realize who you were when you first came to work here. But please stay because God is blessing me because of you. The problem is, is that the church does not understand the redemptive lift that we are supposed to be producing in society. Well, as I've always said, you don't know what you don't know that you don't know. You don't know that you're supposed to be having an impact on society and you're content to just go to church and wait for the rapture. You're content to wait for Jesus to come, amen. Uh-uh, then you're not gonna seek for any more. But if you look around and say, everywhere I go, I'm walking carrying a, a shell of the anointing. I'm carrying an aura of the presence of God with me. I walk into a, a room where there's ranked sinners cussing and defiling the name of the Lord. I change the atmosphere when I walk in the door because I'm carrying something like Jacob was. I got some heavy duty stuff on me and when I show up, it's going to cause something to happen. Laban said, please don't go. Oh, Lord, have mercy, don't leave me. That's the exact opposite of what the world is saying to the church right now. World saying, shut up, be quiet, we don't need you. Take your prayer out of schools, don't bring your Bibles here. Don't talk at God's stuff, amen. You know I'm telling you the truth. Oh yeah, that's because we have not yet learned who we are. You see, when Jacob went into Laban's home, he didn't look like much, just a little boy running for his life, but he knew he carried something on the inside. And he knew, you leave me here long enough, it's gonna go to work. And what the church needs to understand is there's something in you that's bigger than you. There's something working its way out that's trying to get out of you and trying to burst out to the outside. Hello, somebody. There's something on the inside that needs to affect your community. And when you walk in your business place, your boss ought to be saying, please don't leave me for somebody to play, other job to work. My God, I've been blessed because you're here. Well, I'm going somewhere else where I can get more, another dollar per hour. No, 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 I'll give you a raise. Just stay here. Don't leave me now. Uh-uh, you got something on you, amen. We need to be walking in that and we need to understand that Nehemiah realized this and used his leadership to help elevate his people and right governmental and societal wrongs in his day. He did not remain silent. He was not mute. He was not unable to speak. Hello, somebody. God, give us Christians once more that are not afraid to stand for what is right and that can make a difference in today's world. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus spoke that in a time when there was no refrigeration, no electricity, no walk-in freezers. But he said, when I walk into a place or you walk into a place, it's like sprinkling salt upon something that's going to otherwise decay. We change things here. We cause improvement. We cause something to happen. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah. Uh-huh. 
when you connect with somebody that's carrying the anointing like Laban did to Jacob, there's supposed to be an impartation of that anointing that flows from them to you. That's why you need a good church. Me and Jesus got our own little thing going. I don't need church. Uh Uh-uh, don't think so. You need to be in the house of God or there's no transfer of anointing that is going on to you, your children, and your grandchildren. And you're gonna feel the effect of that. Amen. And so you need a good church, not one of those that pulls you down. Don't pick a church out that beats you up every time you go to church. Oh, I'm preaching a lot better than some of you are responding right now. Forgive me for saying that, but I just know how I was raised. Amen. You didn't have a good church service unless you left with a spiritual black eye, somebody. Amen. Always putting you down. I want to go to a church that builds me up, not pulls me down. I want to go to a church that draws me close to God. Watch it. Amen. Do you know that, that, that it's the, the, what I'm talking about, the process of connecting to somebody that it carries an anointing is incredible. Watch this, 2 Samuel 6, verses 11 through 12. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Remember this, Obed-Edom the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. You picking up on it yet? Obed of Edom, the Gittite. You you got, got that yet? And all that belongs to him, why? Because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of what? Obed-Edom, the Gittite, to the city of David with gladness. Now, all of us just assume that Obed-Edom was Jewish. Guess what? There are some Bible dictionaries that inform us Obed of Edom, the Gittite, wasn't born a Jew and was actually a Philistine who became a Levite through conversion. Well, look, and I'm going to put it to you. There it is, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Obed-Edom, a Philistine of Gath and servant of David, who received the ark of Yahweh into his house when David brought it into Jerusalem from Kiriath-Jerim. Whoa, you know how strict the Jews were. You didn't get into the house of God unless you were a Levite. And the ark, oh, forget about it, amen. I mean, unless you were the high priest, you didn't get close to that thing. Here is a man that when they were carrying the ark, you remember a tragedy occurred and they looked for a place to dump it and the closest house was Obed of Edom, the Gittite, one of the Philistine cities, hello, amen. Remember who Edom was? That was Jacob's brother. He was not the one that had the birthright. He started a different family. They married into the Philistines. Go back and read it in your Bible in Genesis. And now we find this guy, There's the ark has stumbled. Somebody's had a tragedy. They parked the ark at his house, and guess what? He is so blessed, he falls in love with the God of the ark of the covenant. And everything in his house gets blessed. This scripture blows my mind. The 
profundity of the implications of this verse are beyond my ability to wrap my thinking around it. Amen. Do you know that later references to Obed-Edom were that he became a Levite in the house of God and was both a doorkeeper and a worshiper in the tabernacle? How do you get all the way from being a Philistine into the house of God where you can see the Ark of the Covenant and even be a worship leader that, oh, listen to me. I'll tell you what took place. Somebody told David, do you know that Obed-Edom, that Philistine's getting blessed down there? His family is because the Ark is in his house. And do you know what David did? David said, I'm gonna go get that thing. And he went and got the Ark of the Covenant. And and you know what Obed-Edom said? If you're going and taking it from me, I'm going with it. I'm not living without it. I'm not gonna live without this. Uh-uh. I lived my whole life and didn't have it, but I, I found out about it now, and you can't take it from me. I'm going to. Like my wife and I, we decided some several years ago, after all these years of marriage, we weren't going to fight anymore unless it was something worth fighting for. We were going to save our energy for those thermal nuclear kind of wars, you know. People have wars every day. Oh, we're beyond that, baby. I don't care. I may not like it. I'm keeping my mouth shut. But if it's a big issue, then I'm going to come. I'm going to carry some stuff to the table. And she decided the same thing. And you know what I told her then? I said, honey, I made up my mind. You ever leave me, I'm going with you. I can't live without her. I'm going wherever she goes. I've spent two, oh, and that's what Obed-Edom said. It's only been three months, but I'm not going to live without the anointing in my life and without the presence of God. My life has been elevated. My life has been blessed. I'm not gonna learn to live without it, not. And he said, I'm going with you. And they said, well, okay. And they figured, God let him keep the ark in his house and didn't kill him. I guess he wants to continue to kind of oversee it. It's okay with us. How about y'all? Y'all, y'all singing? Yeah, it's okay with me. It's okay with me. You live out, Levites have any problem with it? No, it kills them. You know, we're scared of that thing. And they led Obed-Edom, the Gittite, Gittite of Gath, come and become a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. I'm concluding, concluding. I'll have to finish this next week, amen. But all I can tell you is to me, this is a perfect picture of the redemptive processes of the Bible. He finds us as Philistines, we don't belong. We have no right. God knows we couldn't earn, beg, plead, or borrow our way into the kingdom of God. And what we could not do, grace did for us. Grace reached down and picked us up you who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Not only did he pick me up and write my name in the book of life and turn me around, he elevated me. And now I get to come into the presence of almighty God like Obed-Edom and I'm blessed because I understand there is a redemptive lifting process that is going on because Jesus is in my life. And I conclude today by saying, Every one of us leaders.
And people who connect with you ought to feel their boat rising as the tide of God's favor comes in. As they connect with you, they ought to experience the same thing. Look at somebody and says, don't leave because I'm blessed for your sake. Would you do that? Look at somebody else and say, you don't want me to leave either. Amen. Because you're blessed for my sake. You got connected to some stuff you didn't even know you were getting hooked up to. And there's some heavy duty stuff working in my life that's going to manifest itself.